morning everybody so one a couple of uh, announcements i want to just uh add on to what was said there next steps once again if you if you're kind of new here and you're wanting to get connected and don't really know what to do what the next step is for you that's why we have next steps it's not something that's mandatory but it's something that's for you uh so if you would like to do that we're gonna have step one today uh just to discuss our church a little bit and how you might would want to get connected and let you know what we're all about It'll be right after service over in the other building in the conference room. So please uh, don't hesitate to come over and join us if you would like to. If not, if you need to get some things planned, uh, just sign up on our website or let somebody know out at the welcome desk, and we can figure out how to get you on there at a later date if you would prefer that. And also, one of the things uh, that we missed that I want to let you know about is that we've got a worship night uh, next Sunday night at 6 p.m. So if you can make plans to be out here for that, that would be great. Amen. Everybody feel good this morning? I want to pray. I'm going to be uh, reading from the book of Revelation, and I'm going to read a whole lot of verses. Uh, so Revelation chapter 5, chapter 6. I might even go ahead and read on through to chapter 20. I don't know. I mean, it's... Uh, I'm, I, but I'll try to stop in chapter 6. But, uh, if, so if you have a Bible, turn to Re Revelation uh, chapter 5. And before we get into it, I just want to pray. As we were worshiping this morning, I just sensed the Holy Spirit just, just wanting to say maybe to somebody, maybe it's for you, maybe not, but just remind, remind them of my mercy. And as we were singing, oh, precious is the, is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I, just, I had a, a burden on my heart just for people that I felt like were dealing, battling with shame things that they had done, condemnation that they were under, and God says, I want you this morning to be reminded of my mercy, and where you've missed it and where you failed, I need you to know that my blood is powerful, and I've come after you with my love, and, and I just want the Lord to, to, to let you sense, I think he wants you to sense that, that goodness and that love and that mercy this morning, so can we pray over this word before we read it this morning? Father, I thank you for your presence and for your spirit that's here this morning. I thank you, God, that we get to, we get to worship you. Because God, church, the reason we gather, first and foremost, the most important person that it is for, is for you, God. And we come to worship you and offer a sacrifice, but when we come into your presence, we find that you are a good God, and you are a merciful God, and you are a God who holds all things in the palm of his hand, and is sovereign over all, and sees things from beginning to end, and we can trust you with our lives. And so, God, we offer the sacrifice of our lives to you this morning, and we say thank you. And Lord, for those that are under the weight of, of shame and condemnation and struggling and battling with sin this morning, Lord, your blood is powerful and I pray, pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would apply it to their lives and that they would recognize this morning that in you Lord Jesus Christ they are a new creation old things have passed away and behold all things have become new and so Lord as we open your word we pray that you speak to us this morning in Jesus name amen amen, amen. so I'm going to read this and I want you to pay close attention it is uh, actually the scripture that the song we just sang was taken from in Re Revelation chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 1. Let's read this together. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. 
Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Amen. Amen. You say amen to that? That was a long reading. I love the Word of God. I love the book of Revelation. I've actually been considering teaching through the book of Revelation verse by verse. Don't know how I'm going to pull that off or if I want to do it on a Sunday morning. But you know, the truth is I see a lot of people trying to read through the book of Revelation and there's so much confusion. And people read it and they're like, what's going on here? Is this something that's going to happen at the main end? Is this something that has already been happening? Uh, I I don't fully understand. Who are the 24 elders? And somebody actually asked me that question last night because they were studying uh, the book of Revelation. And the 24 elders most likely represent the people of God throughout the history of the earth. Uh, Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve disciples that followed Jesus representing old and new covenant people of God around the throne worshiping from generation to generation. Those are the 24 elders that represents us who come and worship God. And when we talk about the church, what you see here is a picture of worship in the beginning. Because in all things, no matter what's going on in our world, a lot of us were talking about the end times and man, we're living in the end times. Look at the world, look at the deception, look at the wars, look at what's going on in Israel. And 
people get spooked and people are questioning, are we in the last days? Are we in the end times? Well, you know, when Peter got done preaching on the day of Pentecost, he brought Scripture to the forefront and said, then, in the last days I shall pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. We have been in the last days, my friends, for 2,000 years. Because when Christ defeated sin, hell, death, the grave, and all the powers of darkness, we moved into a new season in which the plan of God is now unfolding in its fullness. And we are toward the latter end of that. Amen. And so when we read the book of Revelation, we don't come with a lot of fear. We don't come with a lot of anxiety of what's coming upon the earth. Why? Because we are the chosen ones of God called to worship the Lamb that was slain who redeems us all out of the world. And so we have a center, a focal point on which we draw strength from when we come to these scriptures. Now, he has in chapter 5 of Revelation a scroll that is in the right hand of God. And this is the end time, the entire plan of God in the last days that he is about to unfold. And he looks and he says, who is worthy to open up this scroll and to undo the seals so that the plan of God can unfold before us and we can see the ultimate end in which Christ reigns supreme over everything and all things are made right and all things are made new. Who is worthy? And he saw that nobody in heaven, nobody in earth, nobody under the earth was worthy. So he began to weep loudly until one of the elders said, look, the line of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed and he is worthy to open the scroll and unloose its seals. And he stopped, to, he stopped weeping and he turned. And here's what's interesting. He called him the line of the tribe of Judah, but when he turned and looked, he didn't see a line. He saw a lamb as though it was slain. And this is very interesting because God's power is not released by force. God's power is released in the world through self-sacrificial love. Jesus did not come conquering with the blood of others because he went to war and pulled a legitimate sword and slay, slew his enemies that were against him. No, he defeated all of his enemies through an act of self-sacrificial love on the cross. It was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world that conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave and the powers and the principalities and Satan and all the powers of darkness and he is still conquering from the right hand of God even when it looks like he isn't. Amen. Because if we look in our world, some people would say even whenever John is writing the book of Revelation, the issue with the Christians of his time is, listen, if Jesus has conquered, if he has defeated Satan, then why are we being persecuted by Rome? Why are my brothers and sisters dying on crosses day after day? Why is the Apostle Paul being beheaded? Why are these things happening if Jesus has conquered? And he says, because there's a plan before the foundation of the earth, and there's only one that's worthy to unloose it. And you've got to understand that there's some things that must take place in this broken world before Christ returns and makes all things new. But he says we have this, this focal point, and what this means is that we can gather around. I, I, I want you to understand this, because when we gather on a Sunday morning, just like I said in my prayer, do you know who church is primarily for? Somebody said, well, it's for the lost. Eh. Somebody said, well, it's for me and my family. Eh. Right? No, church is primarily for God. Amen. We come together to give him a sacrifice and an offering of our lives to say, God, you alone are worthy. The reason I'm here is because of you. 
And if I don't hear a word that's worth a dime, if nobody says anything, if I don't leave here feeling refreshed, I still am going to give you my sacrifice and my offering because you alone are worthy. And when we meet with this God, He loves us enough to feed us with His Word and to give us His Spirit and to allow us to be refreshed and strengthened so that we can carry on the duties and the responsibilities of our life. But, but, but worship is the central focus and the center point, And He's bringing all of the people of God back to that central focus that listen there may be some crazy things going on in the world that you don't understand but we can come together no matter what happens next week or the week after we can come together as the people of God and worship and Jesus stands in our midst and strengthens us and reminds us that hey everything ain't just over just yet and I'm still reigning supreme and I alone am able to unleash the scrolls and there's not one thing that will happen on this earth that doesn't pass through my hand and even though I am not the author of evil there's a war out there and Satan and his minions are loose and human beings are living in sin and they are deceived and running in a different direction but I am still over all things and I have you in the palm of my hand. And this is what John is trying to say in the book of Revelation that there's a purpose behind what we're going through. And that's the mystery of what's going on in Jesus' sacrificial death. See, this lamb, he's not a powerless lamb. It looked like Jesus was powerless on the cross, didn't it? When his enemies defeated him, why didn't he come down and just vanquish every enemy and bind Satan eternally? Because he's representing to something to us that this is how we overcome. We overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb, not the blood of others. We overcome by the word of our testimony. And we love not our lives unto death, not we kill other people who come against us. We're willing to lay down our lives to demonstrate the power of God in a new way. So Christ reveals His, his power and His love in an entirely different way. And we are going through a season of tribulation here on the earth that we must face. But you know, there's one man that said in particular, Samuel Rutherford, he said this, he said, I find it most true that the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without temptations. Isn't that interesting? If my waters should stand, they would rot. Faith is the better of the free air and of the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace, grace withers without adversity. The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us to handle our weapons. I know you're going through some things in your life right now. I know the world is going through some things. But what's going on is that we are in a time of tribulation in our world. And that tribulation according to prophecy and other things will likely increase and intensify as we get closer to the end in different ways. And what he opens when he opens the seals and unlooses the scroll is what you find is four riders on a horse come out in the beginning. And there's a scripture that actually says if you walked with the footmen and were wearied how will you actually be able to run with the horses my point being is that God is trying to get his people one of the reasons that John wrote the book of Revelation is because he saw the people of God being wearied by what was taking place around them they were worn out they were persecuted evil was happening there's death and destruction there's pestilence and disease there's world leaders who are filled with devils doing all kinds of crazy things and the people of God are worn out and they say no 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 Get a fresh heavenly vision of Jesus seated on the throne because he's unleashing things and the seals are being opened up, but you are in a current war. But see, even when you go through the war, Satan is allowing these things to come so that you can become better equipped to be more like Christ. Amen. See, they viewed that no, there was no greater blessing than to be able to go through the same tribulation that Christ himself went through on this earth, to suffer the same temptations and testing that Satan brought against him, and to be able to walk and live as an overcomer through Christ. See, 
It says in the book of Revelation that to those who overcome will be given these rewards in the end. We've got a heavenly reward that nobody else can ever attain to. And so we can go through hardships and difficulties because we have our eyes set and fixed on Jesus who will reward us when He returns and that is where the place that we worship from. And these four horsemen represent a chain of events that human history knows all too well. You've got conquest, you've got the breakdown of peace, you've got death and war, economic injustice, famine and disease. And some people say, well, is that because of human sin or is it because of divine judgment? And the answer is both. What you see is a world that has rejected God, they're unthankful, and they don't choose God. And because of that, God hands them over to the sinful consequences of their actions. And in that judgment, and ultimately according to Romans 1, the wrath of God is released on the earth. Now we've talked about this before. We talk about the wrath of God in Romans 1. Primarily it is the the act of God handing you over to the desires of your heart. When you say, no, 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 God, we don't want you, we want our own desires... We don't want to do things your way. We don't want to follow your commandments. We want to be our own gods. You know what God does? He says, okay, here you go. And what you see being unleashed on our world, the reason there are wars and there are sinful actions and there are sometimes things that we cannot even imagine is because God is in the act of releasing his judgment on the earth and handing us over to our sinful desires. And so in that, we actually begin to worship our false god, which is a satanic god, and you see him running amok over our world, bringing war and division and hatred and sinful actions and all of these things being unleashed on our world. And we're wondering, how long, O Lord, will this take place? And he says, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly to establish what needs to take place. But these horses are unleashed. I actually rode a horse this week, right? Praise God. That's why it got stuck in my head, I guess. I was thinking about, you know, one of those four horsemen. And I'm riding that horse. And, uh, but horses in, in that time were war animals. And do you all realize that we are in a war? I know oftentimes in, in American Christianity, we think that it's very comfortable and things are pretty easy. And they are pretty easy, to be honest with you. In, in the broader global context of what's happening in the earth, what has happened throughout history, we've got it easy, folks. I know we think we have difficulties, but oftentimes our difficulties are very small in measure. And see, these horses are war animals because even if we're not in a war specifically, I read about the war over in Israel and Palestine just this morning, and currently the number of, of Palestinians that have been killed... And I watched videos of children that were in hospitals that had been wounded with shrapnel, a child that, many children that have died. There's like 100 children dying a day. So uh, no matter what side of the fence that you, that you take on, on that war, and, and you see all kinds of crazy stuff going on with it, can I tell you that war in general is evil? War is evil, no matter how you slice it. There's no right way to end up saying, oh, this is a good thing. This is the right thing. But see, we are in a world that is not just at war physically. We are at a, in a world that is at war spiritually and emotionally. And just because you don't, you're not around flying bullets, there's wars going on in your heart right now. There's wars going on in your family right now. There is a war for your soul day in, day out. And you are being tempted, and many of you are falling prey to the temptation rather than overcoming it. There's a battle raging all around us every day to, to slide us into a place of lukewarmness and, and staleness and to lose our, our fire for God and to come into a place where we're no longer awake to what's actually taking place in our world. There's a war going and a battle raging for our souls. Now, in Revelation 6-2, he says, I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. 
Now, you can read a lot of different interpretations on this. Some people say, now, this is, this is actually something that happens at the end of the end, the last seven years of history. I think sometimes that's a bit of a stretch. I think a lot of things that happen in the book of Revelation are things that have happened throughout church history that did happen when John was writing and will continue to happen and will be intensified at the end. Amen. I, I think that, that we have to see the book of Revelation as something much broader than what's been given to us just in the Left Behind series, if any of y'all know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, there, there's, there's a lot more depth to it than just that. But one interpretation of the white horse is that he is the Antichrist. And another interpretation is that he represents world leaders throughout history because throughout history and throughout the church age, the last 2,000 years or more, what you see are world leaders that rise up and they conquer and they seek to conquer in the world. And what follows behind them is war and violence and death and famine and economic collapse and then ultimately, right, disease and death. And so you see this happening over and over and over again throughout world history. And this white horse then is a mimicry of the true white horse rider, which is Christ himself. Because when Christ comes back, y'all, he is going to be a world leader that is better than Donald Trump. Amen. Amen. Like, I, I, I understand, man, that when we, I, get, I get passionate about politics. I want the right guys to get in office. I truly do. And I pray for the people that are in office. But can I tell you, I've never been more certain in my life that no governor or no president that we elect will ever do justice to what we are seeking. They are incapable, and this is what John and the apostles knew. They knew that ultimately every world leader that stood on the scene would fall short and be, be betrayed by their own pride and their own sinful desires and lead human beings in a wrong direction away from God. There's very few world leaders, very few presidents that we could look back and say, you know what, they carried the mission of God. They carried the mission of Jesus Christ. See, so we, we can't look, we can't be deceived into looking for a world leader because, listen, in our world, people's, people's God is becoming politics. And what people are looking for, they're looking for somebody to show up on the scene and say, we're going to fix this thing. And it's so easy to get our hopes up and think, man, this guy is, this guy is the savior of America. This guy's going to fix the, 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 the global policy of our world. This guy's going to take things into action. And he's saying, no, 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 all these men are riding a white horse, but it is a false white horse. It's not the true white horse. It's a mimicry of what ultimately Christ is going to come to do in the end and establish a foundation of righteousness. So, number one, the white horse is deception, domination, and destruction, and it's fueled by pride. These are false world leaders. In 1 Thessalonians, which 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul is writing about the end times, and, and the Thessalonians, they're all scared about what's going on. They're extremely persecuted. They're saying, man, when is the Lord going to come back? And in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says this. He says, Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. I don't know if you know what a th how a thief in the night comes, but he doesn't knock on the door and say, yo, I'm here. It's suddenly. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, you're not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. 
So the Thessalonian church, they had a lot of questions. And even in what we read a few weeks ago, Paul said, now don't, don't get hasty and don't get carried away because the t- return of the Lord is not going to happen unless there's a great falling away that people who claim to be Christians actually turn from the faith, they quit believing in Jesus, and they remove, what they, they remove themselves from that. He says there's going to be a great falling away, but it's going to be among the visible church. And then he said the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. Now a lot of people will say this white, this, the, the, the climax of this white horse rider is the Antichrist that steps on the scene this man of lawlessness that is going to be revealed but the words that he used he says when they come up what they say is peace and safety but then sudden destruction comes now get this in John's time the Roman Empire was spreading and they were taking over the world and when they got into a particular area they had something called the Pax Romana the peace of Rome or the Pax et Securitas which is peace and safety in other words they come in crucify half a dozen And then say, we're here with peace and safety. And what they're saying is, we're going to dominate you. We're going to control you. We're going to take over. And we're going to trade having control of your life for your peace and security. How many of you are like, man, that's a good idea. Sign me up. But this is how world leaders operate. We want to control you. We want to deceive you. We want to dominate you. And what we'll do is we'll give you financial stability. We'll give you security. There'll be peace. We'll take care of the wars. We won't, we'll fight for you. We'll fight on your behalf. This is what world leaders and governments have done throughout history and will continue to do. And he's saying when they come to you saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them because there's deception behind it. And what John is trying to say is the only source of genuine security is not in any human institution. Let me tell you something. Medicaid ain't going to take care of you when, the, when push comes to shove. The government ain't going to take care of you when push comes to shove. World leaders that you vote for are not going to take care of you when everything hits the fan. He says your trust has got to be in God in this hour. Your trust has got to be in God and God alone. You're following a white horse rider who is not the false white horse rider. He's the one who rides a white horse and judges in righteousness. Amen. So we're called to proclaim the truth of the gospel. No matter what happens in this world, we really have one goal, and that is to spread this gospel as much and as deeply as we can and to live as witnesses in the community God has called us to so that people can see and know Christ. And so here's another view, though. I want you to look at this. Eugene Eugene Peterson actually believes that the first horse, the white horse, is Christ. And, and, And he says that the favorite psalm of the early Christian community was Psalm 110. Look what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, that's God the Father, says to Jesus Christ, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. Now the early church, they saw Christ as ruling in the midst of their enemies. In other words, when they gave their lives and had to be killed because they proclaimed the gospel, they were conquering the world. They viewed that when they were going to be crucified because they preached the gospel, that was a way of conquering the world. They didn't say, hey, let's get a bunch of ammunition together and blow everybody away that comes against us. No, they said, we're willing to lay down our lives and tell you that Jesus loves you as we do it. And that is how we conquer the world because the world that is really eternal is the one that is to come. And death does not end me. 
Death does not bring an end to what I'm living. I'm living something that goes beyond the last breath that I take. And when I die and you see joy in my face because I know I'm meeting my Lord and Savior, you're going to know that I conquered this world. It's a different style of conquering. He rules in the midst of his enemies. See, when they loved those that hated them and persecuted them and they stood for the truth of, God, of the gospel anyway, they saw themselves as victorious. When they were starving to death and barely had anything to eat, but God provided for them and they were still a witness and still told people of the love of Jesus Christ in the midst of their suffering, they were conquering the world. Do you understand that? Now that's a totally different mindset from the American prosperity gospel. We believe, hey, victory's coming, breakthrough's coming, that check is coming in the mail, bless God. And I'm telling you that that check didn't come in the mail for them sometimes. Breakthrough didn't come sometimes. Their breakthrough was an internal breakthrough because they had an, a fortitude to stand for Christ in the midst of absurd difficulty because Christ was ruling in their hearts in the midst of His enemies. And they saw Jesus in them. They saw Jesus in them and it changed their hearts. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judge and makes war. And see, I want to say that if Jesus is this white horse, he is leading us conquering and conquering daily fields of battle that we are in. See, we're all facing battles, y'all, but we've got a Lord and a Savior who is making us more like Him. He's teaching us to forgive people who hurt us. He's teaching us to lay down our lives for people that honestly despise us. He's teaching us to love our enemies, and He's teaching us to be a witness of what it looks like to, to have a healthy, loving family. And He's teaching us to, to proclaim this gospel so that other people can come into this kingdom and know that this is not the end, and this world is not the world that we're living for. It's an act of self-sacrificial love and humility. Revelation 6, 4, he says, Another horse came out bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. This is the red horse of war, division, and violence. And this is fueled by hatred. Jesus said one of the great markers of the end times was that people that once loved one another would betray one another and begin to hate one another. Have you all ever been in relationships, even in church, it's, it's funny whenever you're a pastor how many times you hear of relationships in church where people betray one another and literally people begin to hate one another. Now what's funny is that nobody in church or a Christian will say that they actually hate them, but deep down in their heart you can tell the way they talk about them. They despise those people. Somebody amen me this morning. War, division, and violence isn't just what's happening in Israel against Hamas right now. War, division, and violence is happening in our own hearts. And he says these things happen in our midst. It's the red horse and it causes great division, great fear, great violence among people. And we begin to see others as an, an obstacle or an obstruction to overcome rather than a person to love. And I tell you, when you look at our world in the shape that it's in, Jesus is the only person that can fix it. Because when I look at that war in Israel and I think about, like, for example, you know, nations have the right and the prerogative to defend themselves. If you come into my house, I'm going to protect my family. I may lay up my own life down, but I'm going to protect my family. So people have the prerogative, but there's something about making war. And I understand that Israel, in a sense, they feel like they must retaliate because if not, then people, then people want them dead at all costs. 
But still yet, it's still not a good thing to have to retaliate so that women and children die. But this is the world we live in. This is the red horse. And it can only be overcome by the white horse that comes back. This is the middle of something that we live in and there is no good way, there's no right way out of it right now. The only person that can come back and set these things right is Jesus Christ Himself. But see, we glorify war as if it is a proper means to achieving goals. But can I tell you this? Make no mistake, Jesus never, ever, ever rides the red horse. Jesus never, ever supports war. You say, well, I, I don't know. Well, surely he supported the killing of Hitler and, and all of these things. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, I think sometimes what we have is a compromise. We have an accommodation. The, 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 the greater of two evils, as we would call it. But Jesus, when he returns, he does not come riding the red horse. Even when somebody said, well, you know, Jesus said he came to bring peace. He, he came not to bring peace, but a sword. Yeah, he's talking about the peace that allows you to vegetate in your sins and the sword that cuts your sin away from you. He's talking about the fact that if you choose to live for Jesus in certain areas in the world, your mommy and daddy's going to turn against you. Your brother and sister's going to turn against you, and it's going to cause division because you choose Jesus. He is not talking about physical violence at any time ever. Somebody said, well, what about when he comes back? Man, he comes back, dude, with a sword out of his mouth, and he's going to bring destruction. And you know what it says in Revelation 19, verse 13? It says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Somebody said, well, man, see, that's the thing. Like, he's bloody because he has just killed everybody around him. You know what I'm saying? He has, he has slain thousands coming around him. That robe that is dipped in blood is his own blood. He's not yet even engaged in war. He's not yet even engaged his enemies. He overcomes and he battles and he defeats. We overcome Satan by how? The blood of the Lamb. This is not the blood of others that he has slain. This is the blood of himself because he was slain for the sin of the entire world. And when he shows up, he doesn't come to shed the blood of others. He comes with a robe dipped in his own blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, that's you and I, praise God, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, he comes and the way that he defeats his enemies and vanquishes his enemies is not by a physical sword, but with the sword of his mouth, his spoken word. He speaks out of his mouth and he brings an end to all wars and men begin to beat their, their swords into uh, in, in the pruning hooks, the scripture says, and, and, and into plows. They take their spears and beat them into plows and they learn war no more because he does not ride the red horse. And we must, as the people of God, operate as Jesus operated we're not for division we're not here to debate and argue and fight we're here to, to, to seek peace among people and point them to the love of Jesus Christ so we operate in a spirit of love against outrage division and violence Revelation 6 verse 5 and 6 it says when he opened the third seal I heard the living creatures say come and I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Now you know, this, this, this came like, this hit me in the face this week because just last week I talked to a couple of different people that are struggling and need legitimate help and make about $27 food stamps a month 
and are living on very little money. Amen. And getting by. And you see that, that they barely have their necessities. And then I went to a pastor's retreat with pastors that are in New York City and Nashville. And really it was an expensive trip that they put on and they paid for us to go to. I asked this guy, how, how, how in the world did y'all cover the cost of this? He said, man, this is one of the easiest uh, fundraisers I've ever done. He said, I sent four text messages and said, I want to do this for some pastors. And one guy just wired me $100,000 like that. And he said, so the scales, the scales are off. This is what he's saying. He's saying there are some people in the world that basically, and I'm not saying that those men explore, you know, praise God, they're blessed, they have wealth. I'm not here to hate on that. I'm saying that the scales are off. I'm saying that you can go to all kinds of places throughout the world where people are naked and starving and dealing with famine and even in our own communities barely have a dime to their name. And yeah, there are some generational factors involved in that and, and welfare is not always a great thing and people need to work. I agree wholeheartedly with that. But nevertheless, the scales are off and you see many people right that don't have enough to eat bread that day. But then on the other hand, you hear other people saying, don't touch the oil and the wine. We've got to have luxuries. And the rich men of the world exploit all the resources of the world and take essentially from the poor so that they can have the luxuries of life. You see that? This is the black horse. And ultimately, you know what it leads to in our world? Economic collapse. Somebody said, well, I ain't interested in that, Clay. I'm, I like that American gospel. I'm trying to get a check in the mail. Amen. And you know, I believe in a God who provides. I really do. I believe God has provided for me in unreal ways. When I've been in need, one time I was flat broke, and I prayed all night, and I said, Lord, I thought you told me to do this, and you led me into a place where I was flat broke. I went to the mailbox the next morning. In there was an unmarked envelope. I opened it up. There's $1,000 cash with a note that said, All things are possible to him who believes. God provides. Amen. I believe God provides, and I, I, but, but at the same time, we live in a world where it seems like sometimes the provision isn't there, and we work with this balance of, of what's going on, and see, greed is at the root of why we see the world in the shape that it is in, with famine and economic collapse. Eugene Peterson says it this way, he says, the greed is glorified under the synchro-sync phrase, higher standard of living, and used to excuse everyday insanity. We put millions of people to work at idiot jobs to make machines that pollute the air we breathe so that we can move rapidly from one place to another in projectiles at lethal speeds, killing and maiming other millions more than have died in all the wars ever fought on the earth so that we have more time to set before outrageously priced electronic devices that flicker with forms of flesh fantasies that attempt to convince us, usually successfully, that we must have oil and wine luxuries for which we must go back to the idiot jobs to make the lethal machines. I don't know if that hit. Yeah, I mean, I felt the same way, Jeremy. Somebody said, what's that book? It's called Reverse Thunder. Check it out. Jesus, the rider on the white horse, though, he defeats the black horse because he gives, Jesus gives you an abundance of what you need. He gives you an abundance of what you need. He came to give life and to give it more abundantly. And that doesn't always mean a million dollars in your bank account so you can have more luxury. That's not always what that means. Matter of fact, he teaches us to store up treasures in heaven, to be generous, to be content with what we have, for we brought nothing into this life. And he says, it is certain, you ain't taking nothing out. 
And i got to be honest with you, sometimes as a human being here in America, I want a little bigger house. I want a room somewhere where I can get away from my wife and baby just for a minute to thank anybody amen me this morning. I mean, there's some things that I want. But He teaches us to trust Him for our provision and to not be sucked in by the lust of materialism and flesh. He teaches us to pray, give us this day, Lord, our daily bread, and to live by grace instead of greed. We're not riding a black horse, y'all. No, we're followers of Christ. We ride the white horse. And lastly, he says, I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And this pale horse is disease and death in the end. And of course, everybody, I don't know if you remember back in 2020. Most of y'all probably remember that. Great disease broke out on our world. And, 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 but, you know, there, I don't really want to get into this because I would go down a rabbit trail. So I'm not going. But you see that there are indicators of Jesus returning soon because he says there'll be deception, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilences, natural disasters, fear intensifying and increasing. And, and a lot of scholars will even say when you see these things happening over and over in different places all over the world and it's intensifying, these are labor pains to point you to the fact that we're getting closer and closer. But see, one of the things that we see is sickness at a higher level. I don't know. I don't know if you think it's that way, but I see... I see greater technology and more sickness. More hospitals, but yet more sickness. More disease, more death, more prayers for people battling illness. And here's what Eugene Peterson says. This is going to hit you as hard as the last one. He said, sickness is disguised by technology. The machine is more important than the body. We atrophy our legs by mobilizing them in an automobile for several hours a week. We drug our minds and nerves by dosing them with narcotics and stimulants in appalling quantities. And then we think we have access to health because we can go to a modern hospital when we hurt or malfunction. The gigantic medical facilities that are the new cathedrals of our society are not signs of health, but of sickness. Only an unprecedentedly sick society would provide a market for such complexes. Our bodies are systematically abused so that they no longer function easily and naturally as temples of the Holy Spirit. The modern nations with the greatest access to medical technique are the sickest. Sickness is the condition in which our bodies are weakened or impaired so that they no longer are effective as temples of holiness, shaping rituals of love and witness. This is why one of the most conspicuous features in Christ's conquering ministry was healing. The body is holy. Amen. Now, I need to finish this quickly. Now, I've got four more points. But you see those four horsemen of the last days, so to speak, that are released on the earth. And this is evil that is common to man. And honestly, most people have trouble. The people that have trouble believing in God is because they question, if God is good, how could these four horsemen be running wild in the world? How could all of these things be taking place? And Revelation points to the fact that even though these horsemen are riding, running wild, there's still one last horseman yet to appear. 
And he's going to come and set things right. But you've got to understand, we live in a broken world that is not necessarily by God's direct design, but a world in which God has said, if you choose to reject me, this is the judgment that you experience because you have moved away from me and I'm handing you over to what your desires are. And the God of this age is bringing destruction to our world. And you can't align yourself with him. You have to align yourself with the white horse and ride with him. And Jeremiah prophesied about a time in which people would be worn down. And I told you earlier, Jeremiah 12, 5, he says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you're already worn out and some difficult things haven't even happened, it's time for you to gird up your loins as a Christian and say, Man, I've got to learn how to pray i got to get in the Word of God. I've got to get around me some people that can build me up and strengthen me. I've got I've to come to church. I've got to make sure my children know the Word of God. We've got to have an understanding of what's happening in the world without freaking out. We need to know Jesus. I've got to put some spiritual practices in, maybe that I've never even practiced before. If I'm going to run with the horses of the last days, I might even have to fast and push my plate aside and spend some legitimate time with God. Amen. I might have to turn the TV off some in order to gain strength from the God who is calling me in this time. Amen. Bible says those who wait upon the Lord, they're going to renew their strength. And they'll mount up with wings like eagles. And they'll run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And so in, in First and Second Thessalonians, as I told you before, when Paul is addressing, because here's the thing, if you read the book of Revelation and you turn on the TV, like a lot of people are going to try to tell you to stock up food and they're going to try to tell you uh, to, to get ammunition. And here's, all, here's the thing, if, you, if, if, you, if that's your prerogative, you sense the Spirit leading you to do that, you've prayed about it, Go for it. Like, I, I'm, I'm for it because there may come a day when I need ammunition and I need food, and I'll come to your house. Amen. So I don't have a problem with that. But biblically, what's interesting is Paul does not say, hey, when stuff starts getting bad and hitting the fan, he doesn't say anything about stocking up, and he doesn't say anything about hunkering in a bunker. Here's what he actually says. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 through 13, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of the work. Live in peace with each other. So the first thing that Paul says is you need encourage. If you're going to run with the horses, you need encouragement against cynicism. Now I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm surrounded sometimes with people who are very cynical, and very critical and we live in a world that everybody is just criticizing everything that's going on and he says no 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 when you're among people you have to understand that people are struggling and what they need is encouragement I love what Donald said the other day and we put it out on a I put it out on a meme on on Facebook and it got a lot of shares but it said be the reason that somebody else doesn't give up as a Christian you're called to build up and not tear down I don't know anywhere in Scripture where it says walk into the room and criticize everything you see about how you could do better. I was sitting with, with, with a pastor and he said this the other day. He said, you know, you, know, you know, a real sign of maturity and immaturity, if you can sit among a bunch of pastors, just throw out a name, just throw out something like Stephen Furtick, just throw out John MacArthur, throw that name out and just see how people respond. Because the vast majority of times what people do is they tear down and criticize rather than appreciate what God is doing through somebody else's life. Yep, that's right. Isn't that the truth? Encouragement over cynicism. At no point does he say, hey, get as critical as you can. 
Debate as many people as you can debate and just tear people down, man. Get on Facebook and go off on the church. The church is awful. People are awful. No, that is the devil, my friend. That is the devil. And if you're caught up in that, back up out of it. Come back in the Holy Spirit. Build somebody up. Encourage somebody up. Strengthen somebody else. And live in peace with one another. Satan is stopping at nothing to divide the church and his people so that they have no strength. They're worn out. Sometimes I've been so criticized that I've been at my wit's end. I say, God, I'm done. I've had one too many criticisms. You know what the Lord does? He sends somebody to me that says, no, 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 son. You're doing what God's called you to do. And it's just, you know, I, you know and then I'm like, you know what? You're right. God's called me to that. I can deal with a little bit of criticism. I can deal with a little bit of cynicism because the encouragement comes and strengthens me to go on. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So encouragement against cynicism, that's what he says. Number two, he says ministry against distraction. First Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. In other words, he's saying there's going to be a time when hard things come and rather than hide out and isolate yourself, engage in ministry. Engage in ministry. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Now let me say this. You know, a lot of people can't handle correction and a lot of people hate to be warned and sometimes when you lovingly warn somebody or give them some correction, they just leave the church altogether because we live in the softest generation in human history. People can't handle it. They can't, even in the church, sometimes I hear people all the time, oh, I'm afraid to say anything, I'm afraid I'll hurt their feelings. If it needs to be said, honey, it needs to be said, and they need to learn how to receive correction. He who hates correction, you know what, what Proverbs 12.1 says? They're stupid. That's the New King James Version. It really is. If you got one, read it. So he says, warn those who are idle and disruptive. He says, because there's people in the church who are lazy. They're not doing anything. They're not involved in ministry. They're not witnessing. They're not worshiping. They're not praying. And he says, tell them, to, tell them to get it together. It's time to quit being idle and lazy and disruptive and just gossiping and bickering. And you need to get on fire for Jesus. You need to come into the house of God with some fire in your heart. He says, encourage the disheartened because there are people who are beat down and worn down. And when you see somebody that needs, listen, even if they deserve some of their beat down, somebody needs to come alongside of them and show them the mercy and the love of God and lift them up and pick them up and encourage the disheartened and help the weak. There are some people who just can't get by, man. I've had to talk to people here recently where it's just like they feel like the world is closing in on them. And I said, you know what? We're the family of God, and that's why we're here. You need something. We're going to help you. And I need you to know we're going to help you because we're not going to let you fall on our watch. Amen. you got brothers and sisters who are weak and struggling. Help them. And see, because they get isolated and you don't even know. You've got to find out where these people are at. And then he says, be patient with everyone. You know why? Because when we're coming up under a great deal of pressure, I don't know about you, but when I come up under a great deal of pressure, sometimes I react. And you've got to be patient with people. I could blow it. You could blow it. And we've got to be patient with people in this time. Number three, he says, you've got to have grace against grudge and outrage. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 it says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. People are on edge right now, I think, in a lot of different ways. And sometimes people just totally freak out. And here's the thing. 
more and more what I'm seeing is becoming a problem in the church is that we magnify division rather than fight for peace and unity. And when we are hurt, even in the church, you know, there are people under the sound of my voice, no doubt about it, people have hurt you, and rather than forgive, you have justified why you can hold a grudge against them. And you've not shown any grace, you've not shown any mercy. Somebody was talking the other day about Bill Johnson, who's a pastor of Bethel Church, and they've got some weird stuff in their church, I'll give them that, but I'm not here to criticize this morning, right? But they are probably the most criticized church in America. And one time, uh, I was at a conference with Bill Johnson, and outside where he was preaching, uh, there was a, just a line of people saying, he's a false teacher, I mean, going off, going ballistic. And I thought, man, it'd be, it would stink to be this guy. Like, I get an email every now and then, you know what I'm saying? But at least I ain't got people sitting outside with picket signs. Uh, but you know what he did? We took communion, and he said, all those people out there, he teared up. He said, we're going to pray for them. We're going to bless them. He said, as you walk out, maybe even think about giving them some money. Bless those people out there. Love those people. He said, when people hate on me, when people talk bad about me, and when it hurts me, he said, I send them flowers. I send them a gift. He said, I get the names of their children and I pray for generational blessings over their children and I take communion and I, and I forgive them and I refuse. He said, I refuse to hold a grudge and I refuse to stay in unforgiveness of what people have said about me or how people have hurt me and stop the power of God and the love of God from flowing through me. You know, you may, you may disagree with that guy about a lot of things that goes on at his church and that's fine, but that one thing right there, he's getting right and a lot of people aren't. Sometimes, sometimes it's way better to have love in your heart than flawless doctrine. Amen. Amen. Number four, my last one, joy against anxiety and depression. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, he says, Rejoice always. And here's the thing, how can you be joyful when there is intense pressure, fear, Mounting anxiety, division, and all th kinds of things that are coming that are overwhelming. And the thing is, is that the only answer is that you've got to make a choice. You have to make a choice. I, I preached a sermon a couple of weeks ago about the choice to rejoice. And Gordon Fee says the emphasis on joy is not so much on the experience of joy, but the active expression of it. And sometimes you just have to choose to rejoice because you know the Lord is good and the Lord is in control and you have to resist anxiety and depression in the name of the Lord. And Nehemiah 8.10 says, Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is what's going to strengthen you. And that means that you've got to worship and get in the presence of God and choose actively to become a person who rejoices always, even when you have bad days. Amen. Kay Warren, I'm going to finish with this statement. She says, Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be alright. And the determined choice to praise God in all things. So I want you to consider where you're at right now with the Lord. What God is doing in your own heart. Are you worn out? Have you walked, run with the footman and become weary and worn out and thinking, man, I don't know if I can run with horses. God wants to strengthen you today. 
God wants to encourage you today and He wants to make you the kind of person that can not only be sustained through the battles to come, but to fix your eyes so strongly and firmly on Jesus that you become a source of strength for others. Amen? Let's bow our heads together. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word and for your presence this morning, for your goodness to us. And God, we, we, we pray that, that as we see these things unfolding in the world around us, you say that we are children of, of light and not of the night, God. We're children of the day. And so we trust, Lord God, that you'll give us eyes to see what's taking place in the world around us. And Lord, you will help us to pay attention, Lord God. You've not called us to run and hide or, or do any of these things, but you've called us to be strengthened and to encourage one another and to lift one another up and to engage in ministry. And Lord, to preach the gospel and, and, and to be a witness and a light to those around us. And so I pray, Lord, that those that are disheartened, that those who are weak and feeble, that they would be encouraged this morning. And some people, Lord God, that they would receive strength from you so that they could go out and bless somebody else who is on the verge of giving up. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and we ask you to fill us this morning with your peace and with your presence in Jesus' name. And, and, and so, Lord, I just ask that you do a mighty work in each heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, here's what we're going to do. I want you to stand to your feet. If you want to make a decision to follow Jesus today, I'm just going to ask you to come forward, come around this altar and pray. And if you need encouragement, you feel burdened down, you're weary, you need strength from the Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask you to come forward right now and, and come to this altar and let us pray for you. If, if you've been battling something that you just need broken off of you and you need the Lord to minister to you, I'm going to ask you to come forward just for a moment. We're, they're going to sing and we're going to worship, but this altar is open, so I'm going to ask you to come forward and pray. Let's seek the Lord together just for a moment. We've got a baby dedication in just a minute, but let's take a moment to respond to the Lord. So come, come on, come to this altar. Let's pray together.